You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We have been working our way through the book of Proverbs this semester in RUF, trying to look at the subject of wisdom. And we said each week that wisdom, it's skill at life. But it's really skill at life in in all the gray areas of life, which is like 95% of your life. There are very clear black and white do's and don'ts in this world, and you know them well. For example, uh, one black and white do not is you do not take 8 a.m. classes. And for those of you that are in 8 a.m. classes, you know what what I mean when you say do not take 8 a.m. classes. But on the flip side, you know, you do take history of rock while you're at UT. And... um, But outside of the black and white do's and don'ts, there's a whole lot of squishy gray zone. Should should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go back at it again with the white vans? Or, you know, what should should I do? And um, so tonight, we are going to take on uh, the topic, the big kind of gray area of our schoolwork, of our work, how we relate to work. And so I want to read you just uh, one little section out of Proverbs. You have your handout. We're going to look at a few of them tonight. But we're going to look at Proverbs 6 tonight, and I'll just go ahead and read it beginning in verse 6. <clears throat> it says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief... Officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let me pray and then we'll jump in and consider it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your um, presence that you meet with us, that you promise to um, use your word to pierce the deepest recesses of our hearts. And so we would ask that you would do that, that you would press your word deeper and deeper into our own souls so that we would uh, know you, see you, behold you for who you really are. I pray that you would melt away uh, lies that we believe about you, false ideas that we have about you tonight, and as a result, we would be changed. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to walk up to any person on this campus, in this room, and you ask them this question, how are you? How are things? What's up? Uh... My guess is 10 times out of 10, you will get the same answer, more or less, which is what? Busy. Maybe fine, good, but that's, I feel like that's been replaced now by busy. How are you? Ugh, busy. And that's true. That's a true statement. We're all busy. To more or less degrees, each of us feel uh, some level of feeling overwhelmed, of feeling like there's too much to do, where you don't have enough sleep to energize you to do it, where you're stressed, you're anxious, you feel pressure to perform, you feel behind on what you've got to do. And 
really, your schoolwork takes up the bulk of your life in some sense, of why you're here at UT. And when you graduate, your work work is going to take up the bulk of your life when you graduate. So if you don't, if you don't have a wise approach to how you do work, you're going to be completely lost since that's, the, that's just the bulk of your life. It's absolutely crucial for you to develop wisdom in this gray area of how do I relate to my work, especially if we're also kind of overwhelmed and busy in the way that we do it. So if we're going to be wise in the way that we do work, I'm going to suggest tonight that we have to change two things. We have to change how we go about doing our work, and then we have to change why we go about doing our work. So those are the two big ideas. If if you want to be wise in the area of work, you have to change how we do it, and you have to change why we do it. Those are the two big ideas we're going to explore tonight. So let's look at this first idea. Uh, how we, we have to change how we do our work. And I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a narrow path. And on the, each side of this narrow path is a big ditch. Two ditches on either side. And as we relate to our work, we tend to fall into one of these two ditches. Sometimes we get out of one and then we crawl and we go into the other one. Back and forth we go. But I want to look at each of these ditches one at a time. The first ditch that I want to call uh, just basic laziness. Lazy. This is ditch number one. Laziness. And laziness is captured in the book of Proverbs by this character that kind of shows up throughout the book called the sluggard. Isn't that an amazing word, the sluggard. It's just this picture of um, pure, uh, pure laziness. Look at verse 10. The sluggard says to themselves in chapter 6, verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And here's what they're basically saying. I will chill out now. I will play Smash for a few hours now. Uh, I'll mindlessly scroll through Instagram for 30 minutes or so now. I'll pound through a few seasons of Parks and Rec now. And I'll get around to all my work later. And this is basically just someone, uh, this, is a, this is the classic picture of procrastination, which you and I know well, right? We know how to procrastinate. But for a lot of us, uh, we just find excuses to put things off that we have to do. I'll respond to that email later this week. I'll read those chapters this weekend. It's just we put off what we have to do, and usually because sluggard types wait till the very last minute to do it, now they're under like insane amounts of pressure to get the thing done before the deadline. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was in this class, and I had to read this book and then write a paper on it, and I kept putting it off, put it off. I didn't want to read it. It was boring. I hated it. There was no spark notes for it, and so it came to be Saturday, and the, the book report paper was due Monday. So I remember going to the library and I, I pounded, like shotgunned a Red Bull and went to the library and sat in one chair and I said, I'm not going to get it from this chair until I read it. And I read the entire book cover to cover, just Red Bull, like stressed out. Like, I don't know how long it took me, but it was like the worst, grueling, awful day of my life, just sitting there pounding this book into my brain and then writing this paper. But you know, I mean, you know that experience well, right? You feel that way. You've like, I've been putting this thing off. I've been putting this thing off. Maybe for some of you, you have parents that you know that are coming in town to visit, and you feel this pressure. I've got to clean up the apartment. I've got to clean up the room a little bit. And you put it off until, like, they're, like, exiting the highway to come to you. And now you're in the stressed-out frenzy of cleaning the place. Clean, wiping the toilets really quick with your hand, apparently. And, uh, or you 
you've got this project that you know you have to do and you've, been, you've, you've had two months to complete it and you've waited until finals week to do it. So now you've got this project to do on top of all your papers and on top of your exams and you're, you're cramming and you're pulling all these old, uh, these old nighters. These old nighters, you're like shotgunning monster drinks and you hate everyone around you because you're so stressed and so angry and so like pressured. And it's usually in those situations when there's so much to do and there's no time to do it and time is not necessarily on your side and the deadline is approaching, that sluggard, procrastinator types fall into the temptation to cheat. It's like you don't have time on your side to just cram and grind it and so you just kind of cut corners and there's a million different ways to do it, as I'm sure you know about. But what happens if you fall into that ditch of just kind of the laziness, procrastinator type as you relate to your schoolwork? Proverbs says that really there are two results that happen in your life should you fall into ditch number one. The first result is basically this. Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 6. Poverty will come upon you like a robber. This is basically saying like almost out of nowhere, without you even seeing it, poverty is going to jump you. It's kind of the same idea of uh, chapter 10, verse 4. kind of says the same thing. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, just to be clear, the Bible's not saying that laziness is the primary cause of poverty. The Bible's a whole lot more nuanced than that. It says there's lots of different reasons why someone would become poor. But at least in this scenario, it says that laziness could be one of the reasons that drives someone to poverty. And what is poverty really? Poverty, in a sense, is losing your resources. It's losing um, connections. And for our university context, for you to fall into, quote, poverty might mean that you fail a class. It might mean that you get uh, kicked out of UT or kicked out of your fraternity or your sorority for your grades. It might look like getting evicted from your apartment because you didn't pay your bills. It's like bad things happen. It's not good. Uh, This ditch is unwise. But there's another result should you fall into it. And it's not just poverty. It's dissatisfaction. Which is really ironic because the whole point of being lazy and being a, quote, sluggard is to enjoy kind of a life of ease and satisfaction. But look at um, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, the soul of the sluggard, sorry, I can't get enough of that word. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Craves and gets nothing. Maybe you've had this experience where you go home for the break, for over one of the breaks, and you don't have a job, and you're not doing schoolwork, and so you're like, sweet. And so you stay out till 3 a.m. each night, kicking it with your peeps, and then you sleep till 1 p.m., and you kind of roll out of bed, and you like zombie walk to the couch where you face plant a bowl of Captain Crunch, and like... (laughs) pound through four seasons of Dexter and get up and like that's how you have spent the break and at the end of that break where you do that for like weeks after weeks after weeks how do you feel you feel horrible you feel like bloated and bored and like that was the worst and that's a picture of someone who has craved and got nothing they gave in to all this laziness and they craved and they craved and it just was, it was just empty. And the Bible is saying that ditch is foolish. 
because it leads to poverty and it leads to dissatisfaction. That is the ditch of laziness. But some of you are on the other end of the extreme, where you don't fall into that ditch, you fall into the other ditch, ditch number two, which is the ditch called workaholism. Working too much. Look at uh, Proverbs 12, 11 real quick. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So it compares these two different characters. On the one hand, you've got this person who's taking care of their land and they're doing what they needed to do and their land is growing resources for them, income and food. And then you've got somebody over here who's also doing that, working on their land, but they're also engaging in worthless pursuits, meaning they're doing a whole lot more in addition to taking care of their land, which means that they're stretched too thin, they're too stressed out, and now they can't even really utilize and take advantage of the land that's providing for them. And the Bible says that lacks sense. That's foolish. And in sense, that, that's a picture of what workaholism is. Workaholism is, is when you work so much, you're unable uh, to take care of all of your God-given responsibilities. Workaholism is when you work so much that you can't do the full range of tasks that God has called you to in this life. So, for example, uh, you don't have good friendships because you're just too busy. You don't have time to cultivate real, authentic, deep, rich friendships because you're just too busy. Or um, you, you can't really worship and sit still long enough to pray or, I don't know, read your Bible because you're just too busy. You've got too much stuff to do. Who's got time for that? Or um, you can't serve in a church or you can't serve your campus just because you're too busy, stretched too thin. Or, or you can't take care of your physical body because you just don't have time for it. You're too busy. Uh, I, I saw the story a number of years ago, and I've always remembered it. It's a true story. I saw it on the news. It took place in 2007. It's a man in Japan riding on a motorcycle, uh, and he was going fast, and he kind of took this curve, turn at, at such a speed that he accidentally kind of grazed his leg up against like this pole or against this light pole, light stand. <laughs> it was a big pole with a light on top of it. <laughs> and um, so he keeps going after he kind of grazes, grazes the light stand. And two miles down the road from when he did that, he went two more miles, stopped and looked down and his leg had been severed. Didn't know it. Can you imagine that? Two miles. Continuing down the road, totally unaware, and then looking down. I mean, can you imagine like you're walking down campus, you've got your beats in, uh, you're heading down Petty Dub, and, um, and you like look down and like you've got a body part missing. I mean, it's, but I think it's this, it's this picture, Petty Dub, quotes, that's me. Um, but it, that is a picture of, I think that's a picture of workaholism, where you can be so focused and so busy and so preoccupied, and you're just doing your thing, and then you stop, and you realize something is horribly wrong. And it has been horribly wrong for a long time, and you didn't even know it. Like, I've been so busy and so busy, and you finally stop, and you're like, is that why I have so many headaches? Is that why I'm so irritable all the time? Is that why my blood pressure is high? Why, uh, why am I getting sick all the time? Oh, it's because my immune system is bottoming out. Oh, why am I anxious all the time? 
It's because my adrenal system is bottoming out because I'm always in such a hurry. This is giving you a picture that, that workaholism is foolishness. So we have to change how we do our work. We don't fall into workaholism, and we don't fall into laziness. To stay on the path, the Bible's going to say, is to be diligent. The pathway of how we change our work is to be on the path of diligence, which is the Bible's way of saying um, exerting sufficient effort to fulfill your God-given responsibilities. That's what diligence is. It's exerting sufficient effort to complete your God-given responsibilities. And the picture, the image that Proverbs gives us of what the diligent is, is an ant. Look at six, uh, six, chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. You know you're in bad shape when the Bible's saying you need to learn life advice from a bug. Like, look at this insect and just do what it does because you suck at this. But if you look at an ant, it kind of gives you three little snapshots of what, the, of what a diligent person is. Three little characteristics. The first characteristic is that the ant is, um, uh, takes initiative in their work. Look at verse 7. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler. So nobody's forcing this ant to do what it has to do. It's just doing what it has to do. You be you, ant, and go do it. So it takes initiative. You have no professor threatening you. You have no parent kind of breathing down your neck. Taking initiative. Second characteristic is that the ant plans ahead. Look at verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant looks ahead and figures out, here's how much time I have allotted to do what I have to do, and I'm going to work it out. I'm going to do what I have to do based off of how much time I have allotted to do it. And the last little characteristic of the ant is that the ant knows when to stop. Verse 8, she gathers her food in the harvest. She's not harvesting all year long. She's harvesting when she's harvesting and she's stopping when she's not doing that. She knows when to stop. And look at verse um, 23-4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Translation, know when to stop. I don't know if you've seen the TV show Parks and Rec, but um, there's two great characters from Parks and Rec. The, uh, I want you to think about Ron Swanson, and I want you to think about Leslie Nope. Ron Swanson would be the, the picture of a sluggard. That he's lazy, he kind of shows up to work, but he hates it, just sits at his desk and really doesn't do anything. He like, just eats eggs and bacon all the time. And Leslie Nope is the workaholic. Always working, always planning, never sleeping, making binders of like all of her ideas, going and going and going and going and going. But if you think about maybe from the show The Office, um, I think Jim in the later seasons of The Office kind of picture someone who's diligent. He works hard. He takes initiative. You know when he moves to Philly and he does that job? But when the work gets in the way of his family, he knows when to stop. He prioritizes his family over his work. Diligent. Taking initiative, planning ahead, knowing when to stop. We have to change how we work. Can't fall into laziness, can't fall into workaholism. But here's the bigger question. How do we do that? How do we change how we do our work? Well, we have to secondly change why we do our work. And to me, this is a lot, this is a lot more interesting question. Have you ever thought about this? What drives me to be lazy? What drives me to work so hard? 
And I want to suggest to you that deep in the engine, like the deepest engine of your motivational structure are two things deeply embedded, fear and pride. And those two things are what drive you to either be lazy or drive you to be a workaholic. Think about the, uh, the lazy person for a second. Look at um, 26.13. 26.13, best verse in the book of Proverbs. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. <laughs> and then you have this picture of somebody who's like in their pajamas on the couch eating Doritos. He's like, I can't go to work today. There's a lion in the street. And it's this picture of someone with just irrational fear. There's no lion in the street. And so he's so afraid of something that it's generating all of these excuses for why he can't do his work. And you know, this, you know this feeling well of why you're afraid to work. And some of you, is I'm just afraid of failing. What if I try and I fail? What if I look stupid? What if I, what if I actually put myself out there and just and make an idiot of myself? Or for some of you, it's what if I try and I do well? It's fear of success. And this fear is also um, tangled up with pride. If you think about a sluggard, a sluggard person says, I can wait till the very last minute And I can complete this thing because I'm so gifted and so awesome and so brilliant. I don't have to apply uh, to the normal rules of how humans work and, like, do their work diligently and, like, plan it ahead. I can chill and, like, play Smash Brothers for hours on end. And then at the very last minute, I can pound it out and finish it and I'll be awesome. Pride and fear is often what paralyzes the sluggard from doing anything. But fear and pride is what propels the workaholic. Think about this. The workaholic is so afraid of failure. That's what's driving that person to work and to work and to work. What if I don't stand out from the rest of my class? What if I'm just normal? What, what, if, what if I fail? That is what drives the workaholic to work so hard, to just go at it all the time. But there's also pride up in there as well. Because the workaholic says, I don't need... Uh, I don't, like the normal rules of how humans work, that doesn't apply to me because I don't need to rest. I don't need to be still. I don't need to cultivate a relationship with God or with people. I'm kind of, a, I'm the exception to the rule. I can just work and work and work and not rest and then I'll be fine. Both of them foolish. Both of them driven by fear and pride. So what do we do? How do we change why we do our work. Because if you just get a better schedule, you get some time management skills, you get a better planner, all of that's great and helpful, but that will not re-engineer the deepest recesses of your heart for why you work in the way that you work. So how do you get down to that level and change your motivation? Here's the last little proverb I want to look at you because I think the answer is here. Look at Proverbs 15, 19. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. It's really interesting. On the first read, you think that it's saying, if you're lazy, your life is going to be bad, but if you're diligent, your life is going to go well. But it doesn't say, if you're diligent. It says, the upright. That's interesting. Who is someone who's upright? Someone who's upright is so confident in their moral standing and their moral ability that they can move through life with such confidence that they literally are upright. Who is upright? 
Certainly not me. Maybe not anyone in this room. Who is this talking about? Well, it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me that the word thorns is used. Because the word thorns is really significant in the Bible. If you go back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, Adam and Eve rebel against their creator. They basically look at God and say, I don't care what you want to do, and I don't care what you want me to do. The only thing that matters is what I want to do. And so they rebel from God, and God curses the ground that they walk on because of it. In fact, there's this really interesting passage in Genesis chapter 3. I'll just read it to you real quick. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns represent God's curse. Thorns represent God's displeasure for mankind turning away from him and saying, I don't care about you, I'm going to do my own thing. Thorns. So isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes, the upright one of God, the one who lives a perfect upright life, he is arrested, he is tortured, and they bang thorns into his head. Why thorns? Because he decided voluntarily, purely out of grace, I will take on the curse of God for humanity. In fact, if this wasn't explicitly clear there, Paul makes it explicitly clear in Galatians chapter 3. I'll just read it to you. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He underwent God's displeasure, God's wrath on the cross in your place, purely out of love for you. Think of it like this. This may be a way that you can kind of wrap your head around that. Um, One of my favorite movies of all time is The Dark Knight. I think it's a top five movie for me, all time. If you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you, but shame on you, it's been eight years. So, um, the basic plot line of the movie is this, that Gotham City is crime-ridden. Bad guys are everywhere. And there's a city official who decides he's going to kind of run this campaign. His name is Harvey Dent. And he, he does this thing where he, he gets all the bad, you know, a lot of the bad guys in Gotham City captured and kind of put behind bars. But there's this weird contingency where they're only going to stay behind bars as long as he uh, doesn't become corrupt. But as the story unfolds, Harvey Dent does become corrupt. And he loses his credibility. He becomes two-faced. Half of his face gets weird. And he goes on this kind of murderous crime spree. He just starts, you know, killing people. He, he becomes bad. And at the very end of the movie, Batman and Two-Face, Harvey Dent, have this altercation. And at the end of this struggle, Harvey Dent, Two-Face, is dead. And Batman is there. And Batman knows, okay, the cops are coming to the crime scene quickly. And I've got a quick decision that I need to make. So what Batman does at the very end of the movie... <clears throat> Spoiler alert. Is that as the cops come on the scene, Batman begins running into the darkness like a criminal. And the cops start chasing him. And there's this little kid who's at the scene that literally shouts out, why are the cops chasing him? He hasn't done anything wrong. Because in that moment, Batman decided, I'm going to take all of the blame for Harvey Dent's atrocities. And he gets chased into the night like a criminal. And then, the very next day, when the sun comes up, there are these posters all over town of the Honorable Harvey Dent, like with his face restored and he's smiling. Everyone's praising him for his heroic acts, his valiant death, 
He is getting all of the credit for the work of Batman and cleaning up the streets of Gotham City. And I think that is such an interesting picture of what the gospel is. Because what the gospel is, is that on the cross, Jesus is taking the blame for your work. He's taking the blame for my work. And he's getting chased into the night by God's justice. And he's getting torn apart because of it. And when you put your faith in Jesus, when you rest in Jesus, what happens is that you get all of the credit for his work. And in God's sight, you are seen as a, as a hero that has lived up to the law perfectly. When the gospel, when that idea doesn't just become an interesting story or an interesting cognitive idea, but it actually gets downloaded into your heart. That's what rewires and re-engineers your motivations. It erodes your pride and it erodes your fear. And here's how. Because when the gospel comes in, it says to you, it took no less than the Son of God to die for you. That, that melts away your pride. Because it says to you, the, the only work that you had to do, you couldn't do. You couldn't repair your relationship with God. It took someone else to do it for you. And it obliterates and begins to melt away your pride. But it also melts away your fear. Because the gospel says to you, you are loved, you are treasured, you are delighted in so much that Jesus was willing to do this for you. Don't you you see when the gospel comes in, it rewires how you do your work and why you do your work. Look, if you were to go up to anybody on this campus that was kind of remotely religious in kind of a Christian sense, or kind of even relatively familiar with what Christianity is, and you asked them this question, um, what do you think it means to be a Christian? What do you think a Christian is? My guess is most people would start listing things that Christians do. Listing a, you know, a list of activities. Well, a Christian prays, a Christian reads the Bible, Christian has a heart for the lost. Christian serves other people. And let me tell you, that is not what a Christian fundamentally is. What a Christian is, is someone who has decided to rest in the finished work of Jesus in their place. A Christian is someone who says, I can't work my way into God's presence anymore. And so I give up and I quit the rat race of endless personal validation and I throw myself at the mercy of Jesus and I've rested on his work on my behalf. That's what a Christian is. And that begins to change your life. What, what, what Proverbs fifteen nineteen is saying is left to yourself, you will experience the curse of God. But if you rest... In Jesus' work on your behalf, then he will make your paths straight. He, he will make your paths level, your level highway. And what that means is that your life becomes radically different, and you relate to your work radically differently. You can actually stop and rest because you don't need it to save you. You don't need it to validate you. You can look at your semester ahead, and you can say, okay, I can do this, but I can't do that because this is going to crush me. This is going to stretch me out too thin. And you have the diligence and the wisdom to say no. You, you can look at your schedule and you can say, okay, this may stress me out, but I'm going to carve in time to be intentional with my friendships or I'm going to carve in time to be intentional with my relationship with God because I need it. Uh, you, you can look at your schedule and you can work hard in your schoolwork, but you don't feel like you're in this 24-7 pressure cooker all the time. What is that? That's you being wise. That's you relating to 
the gray zone of your schoolwork with skill and with wisdom. But how do you get there? Here's how you get there. Here's the final thought. Jesus says to all the stressed out workaholics in the room and all the lazy slackers in the room, he says to you and me both, here's what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls, but you must come to him. Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would be gracious enough to enable us to uh, be pulled out of the ditches of our laziness and our workaholism, to be pulled out of just the, the engine in our soul that drives us by fear and by our pride. And I pray that you would transform us. Would you re-engineer how we are as people? Make us people that are grateful, that are humble, that are diligent, that work hard, but not because we feel like we have to prove ourselves. Father, I pray that you would heal us and redeem us and forgive us and give us the grace to come to you again and again and find healing and find rest. Please do that in my soul and do that in the souls of these folks here tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.